I'm Chris Martin, and this is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. This show is produced by Heterodox Academy. You can find out more about us at heterodoxacademy.org. You can also find us on Facebook under Heterodox Academy and on Twitter at HDX Academy. My guest today is David Frum. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic Magazine and a frequent contributor at MSNBC. He's a former speechwriter for George W. Bush and is known for coining the phrase axis of evil. He's been a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a contributor at National Review. He's the author of nine books, including most recently Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic, which we'll discuss today. So here is David Frum. Hi, David. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Chris. Before we get to your new book, which is why I invited you here, I'd like to talk to you about the definition of conservatism in general. It's something you've talked about in recent interviews. How do you currently define conservatism? Look, conservatism fundamentally is a habit of mind. It's a mental disposition. Um, and I, you've done work on this, that it's, it's connected to the constitution of the individual brain. We also use the word conservatism to describe a particular ideology. And what has happened in the United States in recent years is that definition has, has frozen. And what we now call movement conservatism is a, an anthology of policy solutions to the problems of the 1970s and 80s. As it's become more obsolete, conservatives have lost interest in policy. And what we now call conservatism has become a series of oppositional attitudes to what's going on in the culture. Uh, and I call them attitudes because they don't really have content. There's a perfect demonstration of this. Um, you and I are talking over the weekend in which um, a Trump-North Korea summit has been first on, then off, then on again. Uh, at each of these somersaults, the people who call themselves conservatives have applauded the wisdom of precisely what the president and his administration are doing. First one way, then the exact opposite, then the, then the first way again. Um, that tells you there's not a lot of policy content there. But what is there um, is a fierce dislike of the main trends in uh, intellectual life, in media life, in cultural life, that's what unites modern conservatism. And to make this a little bit longer, so that's why, while I continue to use the adjective conservative to describe myself, I've really gotten out of the habit of using the noun a conservative because I want no part of that um, uh, of that confrontational style of politics. If you were to repair conservatism somehow and and make it relevant to the questions that we're dealing with in our era, how would you do that? Politics begins by addressing problems in the society around it. So if, if your society is overtaxed, um, then it's a good political response to talk about taxes. If you're at a time when the vast majority of your fellow citizens do not feel overtaxed, uh, you're not going to get very far by making taxes your overwhelming policy concern. So let's start with, you start in politics with the problems. Um, declining life expectancy. Uh, pervasive addiction, uh, the decline in America's standing in the world um, that has been going on as a result of you know, uh, the rebalancing of global economic power. Um, I'd be concerned about the more and more extreme weather events that seem to be battering uh, the United States. Um, I would be concerned about the productivity um, of the American economy and the way enormous numbers of our fellow citizens are being left behind and excluded. Um, many of them in sort of what were the traditional um, urban and small town heartlands of the country. How would the conservative response differ from the liberal response? Just take one of these issues, for example, addiction. How would the conservative response be different? Um, I, at that point, I will be telling you about my response because I don't think there is a conservative response to that 
problem, and I don't think there will be for some time to come. Um, I think what um, what a conservative response would look like is it would begin by understanding that addiction originates in the breakdown of mass addiction. I mean, individual people become addicts for their own reasons, but mass addiction originates in the breakdown of communities. And it would um, begin by examining the places where the addiction is worst, and that is in deindustrializing small town white America. Um, and it would have uh, it would say, what can we do either to rebuild those communities or um, to incentivize people to leave those communities and move to different communities. Now, moving on to your new book, Trumpocracy, the Corruption of the American Republic, what's your central argument in this book and how is it different from the other books about Trump that are currently on the bestseller list? Um, The central argument of the book is that Donald Trump's individual personality matters a lot less than Donald Trump's system of power, that he holds and uses power by the permission of other important actors in the system. Um, Congress, his party in the country, donors, um, a conservative entertainment media complex, and uh, a a lot of conservative voters who have been radicalized. So the book is about them much more than it is about him. That's why uh, the book cover shows his back, not his face. Uh, And it makes two other points. One is um, that the rise of Trumpocracy is part of a global decline of democracy. And second, this decline of democracy needs to be understood not as like some impending fascist takeover, but as slow rot democratic institutions. As the analogy I keep using is that um, Trumpocracy is not the heart attack of democracy, it is the gum disease of democracy. And you say one of the things we have to fear from Trumpocracy, among other things, is the accumulating subversion of norms. And Norm Ornstein and several other political scientists and writers have argued that the subversion of norms has actually been going on since the mid-90s, since Newt Gingrich became Speaker of the House, and perhaps Mitch McConnell is more responsible for this than anyone else. What do you think about that argument? You know, one norm whom I would never like to see obliterated is the great Norm Ornstein, who's a good friend of mine. I I hope that norm is preserved for many decades to come. Uh, I would half agree with it and half disagree. The part I would agree with is, yes, this is an accumulating problem, and I agree with Norm that it dates back to the early 90s, and the end of the Cold War, because the Cold War disciplined American political elites. When it ended, um, the main restraining force on those elites uh, was lost. Norm tells a partisan story um, in which the Republicans are wholly to blame. Uh, I think they probably deserve a larger part of the blame, not because they're Republicans, but because the people they represent have been under under more stress since the end of the Cold War. But in my first chapter, um, where I talk about how this has been going on for a while, I point out a lot of ways that this has happened under both parties. Um, I mean, it's the, it, the, the practice, for example, of filibustering judges at levels below the Supreme Court. That started with Democrats under President Bush. Um, and the use of executive orders in areas where the president plainly, manifestly didn't, that starts under Obama, that Obama's in immigration or- orders are utterly unlawful. And that you don't have to take my word for it because I quote in the book half a dozen places where President Obama said so himself before he did it. And uh, in a recent interview, you also mentioned that the way North Carolina is heading, specifically the way the Republican Party in North Carolina is heading, might be uh, a precursor of what we see at the federal level as well. Can you expand on that? I think it's not just North Carolina. Um, it is also it is. Uh, you see similar things happening in Wisconsin. The, the, um, the core of what we call populism 
is uh, people say, well, what is wrong with a politics that puts emphasis on the people? But the core of what we call policy, uh, populism is to draw a line within the country between the people and those people. Populism begins by excluding big parts of the country from its definition of who's entitled to participate politically. So the way that this decline of democracy is happening is not that as in the 1930s, you've got large parties that say we should have a strong man rule. Um, there is nobody in the Western world who's against elections. What they want to do is exclude from the electoral process people who they don't think should belong there. The young, uh, ethnic minorities, um, people who have, whose families haven't been in the country um, a sufficiently long time. So that's what's going on, is that what you see is a, not an overthrow of democracy, but a shrinkage, uh, increasing advocacy that not everybody should vote. The way Republicans usually put this, or Trump people usually put this, is they don't say not everybody should vote, but they will say voting should be more difficult. It's good that voting is difficult. But that means, of course, it's not like you have to do chin-ups before voting. That means that certain parts of the population are going to have obstacles put in their way. And what do you think the long-term backlash to that is going to be? Well, there may not be about It may work um, because uh, you see the habit of voting is maybe the last habit of democracy, um, that people who have gotten out of the habit of watching news, who've gotten out of the habit of participating in juries, um, who've gotten out of the habit of belonging to associations, they're let disengaged from the PTA or um, from veterans organizations, the American Legion is withering, that the whole break, you know, in your field of expertise, the whole breakdown of associational behavior, people will give up their right to vote quite voluntarily because they don't care about it. It's not connected to anything else in their lives. So it may work, um, but I do worry in the book about backlash, um, and I talk of a chapter called uh, Autoimmune Disorders, where I talk about how parts of the government are reacting to the intrusion of Trump in ways that make total sense at any given moment. You can see why you know, they would become, for example, the CIA would stop sharing information with the president it distrusts, but they have long-term accumulating consequences of the loss of civilian authority over the security state. And do you see any pocket of the Republican Party that is pulling the Republican Party away from this trend? As yet, um, there is just a few intellectuals and writers, um, but that may be important for the future. Uh, but but right now, um, I think that the Republican Party is divided between those who are eagerly cooperating with Trump and those who are unhappily cooperating with Trump. And on the other side of the aisle, if we're talking about the left or the Democratic Party, do you see anything they're doing that is effectively restraining this trend, or do you think they're ineffective? Um, not yet. I don't see anything, anything very effective there yet. I mean, there's some organizational work that may have consequences. But I, I'm glad you caught yourself when you talked about the left and the Democratic Party, because um, the Democratic Party, we can talk about pretty rigorously, the left is a much more amorphous thing. But as a non-Democrat, non-leftist, what I observe is the Democratic Party is being ripped apart between uh, elements that do want to participate in politics and leftist pro protest movements that really don't. Um, there's a kind of messianic fervor that at work in the Democratic Party. And it's so strong. I mean, what's it? You, your hunger for the Messiah must be really intense if you can persuade yourself that Bernie Sanders, of all people, is a Messiah. Um, ludicrous. Uh, but uh, but people attach themselves to it because they want to believe in the magical leader who will make problems go away. And uh, that maybe predictably, 
um, so the left wing of American politics is drifting to places where it just can't take, the country will never follow. I mean, when your central issue, and I think this is, so what today is the thing that gets left people most excited, it's about abolishing immigration enforcement. That's the thing they really want to do. You think, that, I mean, that's actually, and that was what they shut the government down over when they briefly shut it down um, earlier in the year. That's not a position that can mobilize anybody or enough people. But what has happened is that the uh, interests of the 2020 Democratic candidates in ex- energizing the activist left wing of the party are drowning the party's deeper institutional interest in being competitive. I think that's a fair criticism. I agree with your comment about messianic fervor. I agree with what John McWhorter has written about certain parts of the left being like religious movements in the sense that they have rituals now, rituals of perhaps confessing white privilege. Uh, Certain writers who maybe fetishize their victimization are idolized. John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry have talked about this in some of their podcasts and some of their writing as well. Um, I do feel like when you contrast conservatism and liberalism, though, one of the contrasts you see is that liberals tend to be a little more concerned than conservatives about people who are at the bottom of the pyramid. And sometimes that can lead to a fetishism of the victimization that they experience. But at other times, that can lead to things like the labor movement or the women's rights movement. Do you feel like conservatives are now addressing the issues that uh, people in the labor movement or people in the women's rights movement would have addressed? No, of course not. No, there's a difference in citing issues, um, listing them, and actually having a thought about what to do about them. So conservatives, uh, or I should say, the Trump, the Trump movement has been willing to talk about the consequences, the adverse consequences of globalization. Let's not lose sight that most of the consequences are good, um, but there are negative consequences. Uh, it's easy for the people who've done well out of globalization to write off those negative consequences. The Trump people, in distinction to regular Republicans, have mentioned them. So good. And they've mentioned the opioid crisis. Um, Donald Trump mentioned the opioid crisis more often than anyone else, else running for president in 2016. Good. But mentioning things is just the beginning. But I want to go back to your point about, um, again, you glided there very quickly between liberals and the left. Um, and again, the left is an amorphous concept, and a lot of conservatives use the phrase pretty irresponsibly. But I, I want to try to use it in a more focused way. Um, I think there is such a thing as, as a left in America. It's small, but it's fervent, and it's becoming increasingly important. Um, and it's a left that is increasingly illiberal. Uh, that there is, you see that in the drift, in the rise of figures, I mean, in the United Kingdom, like Jeremy Corbyn, the Italian five-star movement, which did so well in the last Italian election, that has left, left DNA. These are movements that are anti-parliamentary, that despise traditional processes, that are not interested in incremental reform. They don't mean when they use the language of revolution, not because they imagine a violent revolution, but because they imagine that society can be dramatically changed in a short period of time, which is never true. And the more sophisticated your society is, the less true it is. Um, I want to distinguish that from um, both philosophical liberalism and the mainstream of the Democratic Party, which has been much more cautious. You know, I, I have... Um, no particular brief for Hillary Clinton as an individual or a candidate, but the 2016 primary was at least sort of set the stage or stereotyped how that conflict would play out. If Hillary Clinton had a message against Bernie Sanders, it was, if you want to run the government, you really have to know stuff. 
You have to be able to work with other people. There's, there's a joke about Bernie Sanders that um, no one in America was happier than when Ted Cruz was elected to the Senate than Bernie Sanders, because that meant he went from being the most disliked person in the Senate to the second most disliked person in the Senate. Um, but it is an amazing thing that Bernie Sanders has absolutely no achievements as a legislator because he won't work with others. I agree. I, I definitely see an element of anger and it's easy to channel anger through Twitter and through Facebook, more so through Twitter. And any movement, regardless of its ideology, can now channel that anger much more effectively. I'm laughing, but it's sad. They can channel that anger much more effectively than uh, people in the past have. Now, returning to your book, given what's happened since the book came out, the book came out in January, so presumably you, you turn in the final draft a couple of months before that. Has anything happened since you wrote the book that has changed your opinion, made you more pessimistic, more optimistic? Um, I mean, there have been some events that shaped the book. Um, I mean, when I wrote the book, I was doubtful that the Republicans would pass a tax cut because the tax bill just meant the end of the Republican Party in coastal America. And I didn't, there's still, um, I think about more than a dozen Republican congressmen from affluent parts of California. There were half a dozen congressmen from uh, affluent parts of New Jersey. I didn't think they would all agree to commit career suicide, but they did. They did. <laughs> so the tax bill, bill passed. Um, and that's really the end of a coast. I mean, that, because what that bill does is it, to the extent it pays for itself at all, it pays for itself by taxing California Republicans, upper income, but not super wealthy professionals in, um, in wealthy metropolitan areas. Um, that's to the extent there's a Republican party in California, uh, and to the extent it's not farmers in the Central Valley, that's where it is. Um, and I think they've written all of those people off. I didn't expect that to happen. But um, nothing essential has changed because the book is not driven so much by day-to-day -day events. And in terms of criticism you received or questions you've received, have you received any interesting criticism about the book that has made you rethink anything? I've received a lot of interesting criticism, um, but I, I haven't heard anything that I found so uh, convincing. The, the most, um, I say, from the right-hand side of the spectrum, I mean, we live in a world in which um, the, the pro-Trump people have thickened the intellectual walls around the conservative ghetto. So um, right-of-center people, by and large, have not even acknowledged that the book exists, um, as they don't acknowledge that I exist. Um, I was on um, Fox News. I've been on Fox. I've been banned from the network since 2010. I did. There was sort of a mistake and I, a glitch in the matrix, and I got through and did one interview about this book um, on a Sunday night with the Steve Hilton program. And pretty obviously none of the participants had even read the publicity materials. Uh, so they just done a, a Google search for uh, negative book reviews and they found a pretty sloppy one. And that <laughs> basis of the interview and the interview starts with some with the interviewer asserting, well, in your book, you say this. And that was um, an argument in the book I had cited in order to knock it down. And I said, well, that's not my view. And the, you know, things spiraled out of control from there. The most interesting criticism um, the most uh, is from those who say, sort of in the professional media world, that Trump is simply too incompetent as president to be much of a problem. Um, he doesn't, he's not actually president at all. He's not doing it. Um, and uh, so therefore, there's, uh, you don't need to worry very much. And my response to that is, well, Trump is, is indeed, they're right. He's incredibly passive about all the parts of the job that are proper to the president. He's surprisingly active in the parts of the job that are not proper to the president. 
He may be utterly disengaged in tax policy and healthcare policy, but he's super involved in um, concealing his financial affairs and concealing his ties to the Russians. I think that makes sense. I personally think, too, that if you look at Trump's past, he is good at certain sorts of business tactics. And uh, one of those is uh, doing things surreptitiously. He has a ferocious will to power. This is the thing that really is wrong in the um, uh, Michael Wolff book, which contains a lot of interesting material. I don't want to slight it. But um, Wolff presents as a kind of unamiable, unamiable dotard. Um, somebody who's really disengaged and helpless and almost pitiful. And that, that same man has bent to his will, most fierce personalities in American politics, from Mitch McConnell to H.R. McMaster. He bends people. That's not, that's not a dotard. That's an interesting theory. Um, I have read a recent piece by, uh, by a social psychologist at Northwestern, Dan McAdams. I don't know if you're familiar with the piece, but he did talk about how some leaders arrive out of admiration and some leaders rise out of fear. And uh, Donald Trump seems to use fear as a strategy. And I believe, indeed, at least at the national level, uh, his ability to elicit fear has helped bend people to his will. Now, moving on to John Haidt, you mentioned that you're an admirer of John Haidt. I don't know if you're familiar with the moral psychology work that's been going on uh, since John Haidt published his work on The Righteous Mind. Um, but do you think there's anything that moral psychologists and social psychologists miss when it comes to the political scene? Um, look, I think there's something that we uh, generally miss. Um, and it's really it's across many, many specialties. Uh, and that is that because we regard racism as such an unforgivable moral evil, that when we're dealing with ethnic friction, a lot of analysts and intellectuals want to draw some line and want to explain why um, the, the people who are expressing attitudes that could be described as racist, what, you know, why you're allowed to listen to what they say. And so what they do is they find some other way of um, explaining their behaviors because they don't want to say, say anything that would allow people to, uh, unfriendly people say, well, that's just a racist attitude. So one of the things I think we need to begin is by accepting that um, ethnic animosity is the normal state of humanity. There, it, it is not pathological behavior. It is normal behavior. Um, it is to be expected. And you should study it in exactly the same way that you would study the way lungs react to cotton fibers. And lungs are exposed to enough cotton fibers, your lungs will get sick. And that's not because they're bad lungs. And it's not because <laughs> they're pathological lungs. That is how lungs react to cotton fiber. Um, well, in the same way, that's how people react to ethnic diversity in ways, um, you know, they don't always react. You know, there are conditions in which they might re react positively to it. If there's enough prosperity, if, um, if the diverse elements are filling um, empty niches in the local economy or society that the locals badly want to see filled, um, then you can have a very positive reaction. But you should expect ethnic animosity. You shouldn't pathologize it. And when you see signs of it, you should study it and understand it for what it is. And when you say positive reactions, are you making a subtle reference to countries like Canada and Australia? Um, I'm, I'm making um, uh, re reactions like um, I'm thinking more of, of what happens when um, a lot of sort of the more troubled towns in the United Kingdom. Um, the, if it weren't for recent immigrants from the subcontinent, there wouldn't be any medical services at all. So you can have um, places where you know there's a lot of ethnic tension, and yet 
everyone makes an exception for Dr. Muhammad, the pediatrician, without whom there would be no pediatrician in the town at all because he's occupying a niche that would otherwise be empty. And that, then you can have a very positive reaction. And Canada's like, can, can, I mean, I don't want to romanticize, I'm from Canada, I don't want to romanticize the Canadian or Australian experience. It is not without friction, but it has gone better because um, it, the immigration has been more integrated. But I think Canada and Australia are both taking risks because the, you, these things all happen with a lag. And the Canadian immigration system has become, it's, Canada's intake is now, from my point of view, dangerously high, and it is becoming, because Canada also allows for generous family reunification, you bring in the specialist, the expert, but he's, he's allowed to bring in all of his relatives, and they typically are not as skilled as the expert himself. I think Australia in particular is quite different. Well, Australia and New Zealand, because they tend to have more out-migration than the United States, and the United States tends to not have as much. So there's going back to what you said, I think there might be more appreciation of skilled immigrants there. Yeah. Um, it, just in general, I think we all need to be a lot more, uh, when you say what is wrong with the profession, that um, I, I think in what, because the social, they want to study things, they want to defend the people they're studying, and so they are looking for ways always around the centrality of ethnic conflict, ethnic animosity to the politics of 21st century developed world. But that is that um, from Hungary to Poland to Germany to France to Britain to the United States, where you've had authoritarian populist parties, they draw strength from many places. But the trigger, the, the piece, the match in the haystack is immigration. Now, moving to colleges and universities, which is what Heterodox Academy is about, if you were to give a talk to American undergraduates, let's say at any university in the country, not necessarily about liberalism or conservatism, but about the state of the American Republic in general and things they can do to solve problems that are relevant to the American people right now. What sort of things would you say? Um, I have been in this position, and, and here's the advice I always give, which is sign up for boring things. Sign up for committees. Uh, if there's a candidate you like, um, do the, don't sign up for the social media campaign. Sign up for the door knocking. Um, Paul, democracy is boring. Democracy requires you to get along with people who are different from you and who you may not entirely like. Uh, we have built for society, but especially for the young, an environment in which everything is individuated. They're algorithms, they're robot slaves that make sure that the music that comes your way and the books that come your way, everything is designed to be agreeable. And if you are a college student, especially if you go to a pretty good college, then you're in a world that just the foods, everything is wonderful I mean, compared to what, what it was like when I was in, in college student. I mean, the car doors close with a satisfying click. That wasn't true in 1980. Um, the, the, there's espresso anywhere you want it. And like in 97 varieties and a hundred kinds of tea, uh, you're a vegetarian. That's easy to adapt to. Uh, uh, the clothes fit better. Um, everything's better. And so you become kind of, authentically shocked. And I think that's what happens with these campus protests. You become authentically shocked when you're subjected to something you don't like. But if you'd ever served on a PTA, <laughs> if you'd ever taken part in the union movement back when there was one or a veterans movement, you would discover you were constantly encountering things that you didn't like and you had to deal with them. And that is the thing that really has been lost. And that's why I think younger people are more susceptible to illiberal movements uh, than uh, than their elders have been, they're more shocked when they discover things don't go their way. 
I think because of prosperity, American prosperity and the prosperity you see at colleges, you do see a certain emphasis on hedonism and self-actualization and people are reluctant to do things that are boring because they don't feel like self-actualization pursuits, even though if you're really committed to values to making the world better, you do have to do things that are boring. I entirely agree. Now you end the book on a hopeful note, but how hopeful are you really? I'm not a hopeful person by temperament, um, but in the past year, I've become more hopeful by intellection. Um, and so my advice, I, maybe this is advice to myself, but I pass it on as if it's words of wisdom to others, uh, is think like a pessimist, but act like an optimist. I mean, I do see levels of civic engagement rising. I do. I mean, we certainly all notice um, at places like the Atlantic, the New York Times, and the Washington Post, um, not only are more, we having more readers, but the readers are reading more intensely. And I, I think some of the message that about the troubled institution is really getting through. And I am heartened by the number of people who understand that the, the, answer, that the thing you have to do to save the country from Donald Trump is not elect some liberal messiah, but rebuild Congress and make Congress work better and rebuild local government, which is even more important to make that work better. Do you have any closing thoughts? I think that my main closing thought would be to say, we all need to understand that, that Donald Trump was in some ways God's judgment on us for not being good enough citizens. And uh, he should inspire us to make, and there's a little bit of self-improvement here. And one of the things that's useful about him is because he's, he offers, he offers you kind of a, whenever you're tempted to say or do anything a little hot, ask yourself, would Donald Trump do this? And if he would, then don't do it. Uh, he's like a perfect, he's like, uh, inverse Jesus. I mean, he's like the perfect example of what not to be. And he may yet discover that his contribution to American society is that like three decades afterwards, uh, people will say, you can't do that. That's something Donald Trump would do or say. When I was younger, I had a refrigerator magnet that said, if you can't be a good example, be a terrible warning. <laughs> that's very good. Well, that's... Yeah. Well, I think someone right now is a terrible warning. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much.